I'm still uh, enthralled with butterflies just through this little process right now. And uh, I, I suspect some of you have done the same thing. Has anyone else here put a, put a caterpillar in a, in a jar and, and watched it transform? Has anyone else ever done that? And I see a few hands back there, maybe in a, a grade six uh, biology class or something like that. Uh, it's, it's something that it just happens. We don't have to do anything. And yet, who of us could say, hey, take a little worm and turn it into a butterfly? Can anyone do that? Anyone? Like, how would you even go about doing that? I would start with buying some wings and trying to glue it to its back, I guess, and then where do you go from there? How do you teach it to flap the things, right? It's, it's not going to happen. But God just does it. We just watch and, and are amazed at how he transforms. And I'm so, I'm so just, um, even this morning, just again amazed at how God does that exact work in us. And we don't have to conjure it up. We don't have to try to manufacture it externally. God does that work by his spirit from within us. And sometimes it feels like he's taken a long time and we're, we're trudging along like little worms but he's working it out, and he's going to bring us to completion. That's his promise, and so that excites me. I hope it does you this morning as well. Let's uh, bow and pray once more as we enter God's word. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God of transformation. You are a God who promises not superficial change, but radical change, the kind of change that will last for eternity. And so, Father, we know that this world is passing away. And yet, before it passes away, your word also tells us it's going to go through some very difficult times. It's going to go through some death throes. And and along the way, we know that we have an enemy, that old serpent from the garden, who who is trying to bring things his way rather than yours and bring as many people with him as he can. And so, Father, in this, we recognize we are on a battle, on a battlefield, and we're on a battleground, and you have called each one of us to be soldiers in that war. And you haven't left us unequipped. You have given us your word and your spirit. And so, Father, this morning, as we, uh, as we seek to equip ourselves uh, once more with that, Lord, I pray that as we reflect on what this joy is that you promise us, this happiness, that you would help us to see it all the more clearly and leave with a firmer grasp of it this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we be happy without God? Well, you could answer that question and we could leave right now and the sermon would be over. You probably already know the answer, but I ask it anyways. Can we be happy without God? There's a true story of a school teacher who lost her entire life savings in a pyramid investment scheme. It had been, of course, uh, the whole scheme had been elaborately and persuasively explained to her by a smooth-talking con artist. So when she finally realized that fateful moment of truth that all of her money had disappeared and her retirement dream was shattered and there was no possible way to get her money back, she was obviously devastated. And so she finally, having no other recourse, went to the Better Business Bureau. And she told them her story and, and she asked, is there any way any possible way that you could help me get my money back? And the agent replied, why on earth didn't you come to us first? 
We already know all about this particular scheme and would have been more than happy to have warned you in advance and saved you all of this trouble. Didn't you know about us? Oh, yes, I knew about you, said the lady sadly. But I didn't come to you because the offer seemed so good I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. Isn't that how we all are so often? And this cautionary tale helps illustrate one of mankind's dominant viewpoints towards God. That if we call on God, he will ruin our fun. God is a cosmic killjoy who's just out to ruin our fun. And so rather than seek him or ask him, we just go ahead and do it because we're afraid he's going to tell us not to. And so following God's way, complete with his rules and Things like church and obedience and sacrifice, these are all seen as the pathway of of boredom. And that alternatively, if we do things our own way, then somehow that's the pathway of, of happiness, of excitement, of fulfillment. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you would be happier doing things your own way rather than God's way? Be honest, have you ever felt that way? I have. I'll be perfectly honest, I have felt that way. In fact, I think probably at some point every single child of God feels that way. Especially if you're, if you're someone who grew up as a child in the church. There's times where we, we, we relate all of this with boredom, with, with drudgery, and we don't see the joy, the fulfillment in it at all times. We all can be deceived by this. But where did this idea come from? And why is this idea that God is out to ruin our fun so predominant in the world? Why is it so widespread? Well, it all stems from the great lie. It all stems from the great lie we just watched this morning, the one that was first whispered by the serpent in the Garden of Eden into Eve's listening ear. And the gist of the great lie was this. Did God really say don't eat the fruit? You don't need to listen to God. There won't be any consequences, and you won't die. In fact, God has actually been holding out on you. He knows that you can be like God's yourself, knowing good and evil. Then you can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. Just one little bite is all it takes. Well, bite they did. And we, the descendants of Adam and Eve, have been biting ever since. Foolishly thinking that just one more bite, one more will be that that one that finally delivers on Satan's promise. That we will be like God, that we will be happy, that we will be able to decide for ourselves how to live life. But though it's dressed up a little bit differently today, that great lie, the original lie from the garden, and its deadly consequences remain exactly the same today. Here is a modern version of the great lie. Here's a modern version of it. See if you've heard this one before. Do whatever makes you happy. Anyone ever heard that before? Just do whatever makes you happy. That's, that's, that's life's model. That's number one. You do whatever makes you happy. And at the first glance, and you hear it a couple of times, it sounds pretty good, right? It sounds positive. It sounds like Don't worry about what anyone else thinks. You do you. It almost sounds biblical. But is it? 
Because the two underlying assumptions of this slogan is that, number one, your personal happiness is the highest pursuit in life. That's the first assumption. That, that, that trumps everything else, your personal happiness. And number two, it assumes that we know what will make us happy. So, in the first point, if you decide that your personal happiness is the highest pursuit in life, then what happens when the pursuit of your personal happiness results in someone else's unhappiness? What then? We see examples of this all the time, actually. Take, for instance, the husband or wife, who in the pursuit of their own personal happiness has an extramarital affair, leaving behind their spouse and children desperately unhappy. Does the pursuit of personal happiness justify such actions? Now, we, of course, would call that selfish and sinful. But many would argue that it's justified because they were simply pursuing their personal happiness, and that's all that matters. Now, let's leave that for a moment and move on to the second assumption, that we somehow know what will make us truly happy. But to that I ask, do we really know what will make us happy? Here's a whole host of lists, uh, a list of things that the world would say, just do these things and you'll be happy. Achieve these things. Well, the first is intellectual achievement. Does it make us happy? If we just make that ladder, that rung of intellectual achievement that we've been pursuing. Well, a man named Voltaire, the 17th century French author and philosopher whose works are still read and studied in schools and universities around the world to this very day, Voltaire said near the end of his illustrious life and career, having achieved every academic benchmark uh, more brilliant than any of his peers, this is what he said as a summation of his life. I wish I had never been born. So, intellectual achievement, not so much. Does financial success? Well, a man named Jay Gould, you may not have heard of him, but Jay Gould was the leading American railroad tycoon of the 19th century. Uh, he was the, one of the driving forces responsible in opening the West with the railroad. And what's interesting about Jay Gould is that relative to his peers of the day and the value of money of the day, Historians view him as one of the single most wealthy men in any era of human history. So we're talking the, the top of the top in wealth. This guy had more than, than relative to his peers anyone else in human history. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of wealth. And what did he say just prior to his death? I suppose I'm the most miserable man on earth. That's what Jay Gould said. So... Money, not so much. Does fame, does fame do it? If I'm just, you know, we say rich and famous. Well, the rich, not so much. But what about being famous, being known, having your name in lights? Well, Muhammad Ali, you may have heard of him. The most famous and recognizable name in boxing and perhaps in all of sporting history. And he said later on in his life with Parkinson's disease staggering and halting his speech, he said, I had the world and it wasn't nothing. So fame didn't do it for him. Well, what about great power and conquest? Well, a man named Alexander the Great, after conquering the known world of his time, famously wept in his tent, lamenting, for there were no more worlds to conquer. So, 
conquering, achievement, success, that didn't do it for him either. What about indulging in sexual pleasure? Well, King Solomon, husband to some 700 wives, and if that wasn't enough, he had an additional harem filled with another 300 of the most beautiful and exotic women in the world as his concubines. And he said of it all in the book of Ecclesiastes, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused myself no pleasure. Yet everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so here we have this whole list of of great men in any category you can think of, all saying we achieved the the pinnacle of our area of of expertise, of of our drive, of what we thought would make us happy, and it didn't. It left them empty, hollow, and wondering what was this all about anyways. And yet despite history being filled with countless more cautionary tales, here we sit today in our world around us still continuing to pursue these exact same things. Somehow we believe that we will be different. Somehow we believe that, well, those guys just didn't do it right. They will satisfy me. Yet they will only lead us deeper into the darkness of dissatisfaction, discontentment, depression, depravity, despair, and finally death. And we see the great lie goes in so many different directions. And we see one of those full manifestations laid out bare in in the book of Romans in chapter 1, which Derek read for us earlier. I'm going to invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, but we're going to look at the highlights and the theme of what what Romans chapter 1 in this passage, beginning in verse 18, is all about. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The key phrase in there is men who suppress the truth. First, they suppress or silence the truth of God. That would be his word and his ways. But finally, they realize not being able to win the argument with logic or with rational reasoning. They can't suppress it that way. So finally, they sought to silence God and his word altogether by force. We might call that today censorship. Does that sound at all familiar? Is censorship happening today? Is the truth attempting to be suppressed? I'll let you answer that for yourself. Verse 21 continues, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So first they attempt to suppress the truth, Then secondly, they willfully and knowingly rejected God. They said in effect, God, you're no longer welcome here. They knew about him, but they said, we don't need you anymore. Get out. We don't want you. You're no longer welcome. And the ripple effect of that was they couldn't think straight anymore. It says their their foolish, their, their minds were darkened. Their thoughts were confused. To put it another way, you may have heard this one before. Common sense wasn't so common. What had once been considered foolishness became normal. And again, I ask, does any of this sound familiar? Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. 
So thirdly, after rejecting the one true God, there cannot simply be a void where he was. Someone or something has to fill the void that God, that the removal of God had made. And so, what do they fill that void with? Well, they made gods and idols to their own liking. And I want you to take note that they made gods in their own image. Listen again. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. So not only did they say, we don't need you, God. They said, in effect, don't miss this. They said, we are God. We will worship man. But then, just like the original lie, when Satan claimed, hey, do this, you won't die, there won't be any consequences, here they come, and, God lists, and Paul lists them. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, Even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And then after listing a whole list of depravities, they descended into verse 32. Paul concludes, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, I'm not going to dive into the whole subject of sexual immorality, homosexuality, transgenderism, and all of that, as that is a subject for another day. But again, does any of what I just read sound at all familiar? Look around. Listen to talk radio. Look at the news. Listen to what's happening in our government, in our courts, in our culture. And we see everywhere a dissent deeper and deeper into the same darkness described here. Day by day by day, it marches on. And the people who are doing this, the driving force behind it, think that somewhere in all of this descent into the darkness apart from God, they believe, fundamentally, they believe that they will find happiness. They will find satisfaction. They will find that elusive thing that they are looking for. But it's all a lie. And it's all coming about as a direct consequence from people collectively saying, we don't need you, God. We don't need your rules. We will be God unto ourselves. We will make our own rules. And now we see this happening in the culture as a whole around us, and we say, well, but the church, we're holding strong, we're pure, we're, we're holding to the word. But here's the reality. You don't have to look very far. You probably have been talking to friends or been hearing about it that many, many churches right here in our own province, many, many churches under the title of Mennonite in our own province are going astray in this key area. And what they're actually doing is, in effect, elevating individuals' feelings over God's created order and design. And and elevating human feelings over God's word as though we know better. As though, well, because I know this person and they feel that way, that must be more important than what God ordered and designed for our good and for our happiness. We know better. 
I don't think I need to tell you today how dangerous that is for any church to go in that direction because we are actually putting human feelings, elevating the individual over God and what he has recorded for us in his word. Anyone and, and anyone you hear who is, who is talking that way, especially if they're coming from a pulpit or, or a platform under the, the guise of church, I just can't, I can't warn you strongly enough, exercise discernment. Do not come under the sway of this influence because it is all around us. I'm running into it all the time. We think right now we're in a little bubble here in Killarney, but it's coming. And in a lot of ways, it's here. And so we have to exercise discernment. We have to stand firm. God's word doesn't change. And it's for our good. Trust me, it's ultimately for our happiness. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But now back to what's happening with this elevation of the individual above God. Now though back in in the Roman times they they may have replaced God with human images, we may not see too many people worshipping human images and physical idols around here today. But let me just say that the worship of man is stronger in our Western culture now than I believe it has ever been before. And the modern form of it is called humanism. Humanism, broadly defined, is the worldview that places humanity at the pinnacle of all importance. This leaves no room for God, if if at all he's somewhere down the rung. And so therefore, when man is at the pinnacle, we will solve our own problems, we will achieve our own success, and ultimately we will find our own happiness. Now, the book entitled New Rules created quite a stir back in the 1980s. In it, Professor Daniel Yankovich documented a shift in social values in the 1970s, a shift more massive and more rapid than any of the recent past. And the book was subtitled Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down. The old rules, Yankovich said, stressed duty to others, particularly to one's family. If someone was selfish and got caught, it was embarrassing and looked ugly, but no longer. In what he calls the duty to self-ethic, our primary responsibility is for our own needs and interests. All other relationships and values must fit in that order of priority. After tracking 3,000 people in personal and in-depth interviews, after analyzing hundreds of thousands of questionnaires, he admits that so far the search for self-fulfillment had been entirely futile. It has resulted in insecurity and confusion. What is self-fulfillment, he finally asks in his conclusion? What is self-fulfillment? And when you find yourself, what will you do with yourself? The frightening thing is that 83% of Americans buy into these new rules. And that was his assessment back in the 80s. You can imagine where it is today. Either in whole or in part, they have bought the lie. But those foolish people are not evangelical Christians, right? Wrong. James Davison Hunter, in his examination of students and faculty in 16 leading evangelical colleges and seminaries, used his earlier questionnaire and concluded this summation. Evangelicals are more committed to self-fulfillment than their secular counterparts. And he writes, the percentage of evangelical students agreeing with these statements far exceeded the corresponding percentage of the general population, Hunter wrote. Self-fulfillment is no longer a natural byproduct of a life committed to higher ideals, but rather it is a goal, 
pursued rationally and with calculation as an end in itself. The quest for emotional, psychological, and social maturity therefore becomes normative. Self-expression and self-realization compete for self-sacrifice as a guiding life ethic. Now make no mistake, Satan is a cunning enemy. He is cunning, he is crafty, and he is strategic. So while the devout Christians set a guard against things like evolution and the higher critics who attack the validity of the Bible, and rightly so, at the same time Satan caused the lie of humanism to sneak in the back door of the church while no one was watching. And the result? Listen carefully. God becomes a means to an end rather than the end itself. God becomes a means to an end rather than the end itself. I, I know it's, it's tricky, but don't miss this. Don't miss this because the lie has not gone away. The so-called health and wealth gospel is the most obvious example of this. In, this. in this way of looking at scripture, it's no longer about God. It's all about you. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be happy. It's all about you, 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 you. And all it took was a little twist of the scriptures. And Satan cunningly used a little sleight of hand to change the focus from God onto man. And hardly noticeable if you weren't paying close attention. It's like if you take a photo of someone. The person in the, the foreground and the person in the background, you will notice the focus is more on the person in the foreground. And true Christian theology always presents a picture of God and man together, but God is in the foreground. God is always first. He is always highest. The focus must be on him first. And the highest purpose of life is in exalting God, not exalting man. But Christianity, infected with humanism, began to shift the primary focus and importance ever so subtly from God being in the foreground to man being in the foreground, putting God just a little bit out of focus. And with just a tiny emphasis change in the gospel message, man could use God to get what he wanted, a means to an end. The thinking came to be that everything was for the benefit of man. God made the world for man. The heavens exist for man. He gave his son for man. He has a great plan for man. He desires to bless man and bring him happiness. And now you might be thinking, wait a minute, those are good things. That, what's wrong with those? Well, yes, God does love us. God did give his son for us. God does want us to be happy. The answer is yes, but don't miss this. As a byproduct, not as the prime product. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus said. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Now, the, all these things he's referring to are the basic needs of life. But they are not to be the primary aim. They are the byproduct. They are secondary. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now remember this, God knows our hearts completely. He knows the deepest thoughts and, and motives of our heart even better than we do. And he knows that if we are seeking him only out of an ulterior motive of actually wanting our personal gain or happiness more than he himself and his glory, do you think he is deceived? 
Do you think we can deceive God by saying, yes, God, I'm worshiping you for you and for your glory and your praise, but deep down we're saying, just, just make me happy. Just give me what I want. Just bless me. That's, that's what we're really after. And we put God second. What did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Satan is so clever, my friends. It seems so small, so subtle, but this switch can have a drastic impact on how we think and how we view God and how we live our lives. Listen to what Colossians 1 verse 16 says. Everything was created by him and for him. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. God was not made for you. You were made for God. God does not exist for you. You exist for him. Now let me affirm once more. Yes, yes, God loves us and created us to be his children. Even co-heirs with Christ in everything that he has. But God must not be reduced to a formula to get what we want. No, we are to give God what he wants from us, which is our love and our very lives. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. God is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. God is not just the entry into heaven, my friends. He is heaven. In fact, if we were to arrive at the pearly gates and God were not there, it would in fact be hell. For hell, above all else, is eternal separation from God. Heaven is not heaven apart from God. God is heaven. He is our destination. But my friends, our Creator longs so deeply for fellowship with those who have been separated from Him because of the great lie that He has moved heaven and earth in order to bring us back. In fact, God does desire that we be happy. Not as the aim, but as the byproduct of being in a right relationship to him. Because God knows there is no true lasting happiness, no true fulfillment apart from him. Of this, C.S. Lewis wrote the following in his classic work, Mere Christianity. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like God's could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which alone will make him happy. But God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing. So my friends, let me just tell you today, there is no happiness apart from God. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. There is no better way than God's way. Every last one of the ways apart from him lead inevitably to despair discontentment, and death. 
Now, of course, you might already be wondering, what about those people, what about those ones who are living apart from God but appear happy? What about them? Well, of them, an author named Jen Thorne writes this. Of course, there are many atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, and nuns who have found happiness in the world while rejecting the God of the Bible. I am not suggesting that there is no happiness apart from Jesus, but that true happiness, the deepest and most satisfying form of happiness, cannot be found outside of the Lord. If happiness is a contented pleasure, certainly all of us experience a form of it at different times in our lives. But if our happiness is found outside of God, then it must be found in the world, our circumstances, or ourselves. And all of these things are fragile, fleeting, and often fraudulent. The only happiness we can have outside of God is temporary, which sets us up for disappointment and even despair when it disappears. My friends, today I am telling you the gospel truth. The only enduring happiness in existence is found in Christ alone. So let me ask you today, have you embraced him? Are you living in him? Are you pursuing him for his sake alone? I pray that you are. And if you are, then you already know that his joy is your strength. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our lives. You alone are primary above all things. For without you, there would be nothing. All of creation, indeed all of the universe, was created by you and for you. For your good pleasure, Lord, we exist. You saw us before we were even formed in our mother's wombs. You crafted us together for yourself. And you know, Lord, that our happiness, our ultimate satisfaction of our souls, cannot be found apart from you. And so, Lord, you have made this beautiful way for us to come to you through faith, not on our own terms, but on yours. For you have provided the way of salvation so graciously through Jesus Christ, your Son. And Lord, today our hearts ache for all of those who have bought into the lie, all those who have gone out pursuing other things than your way, thinking that somehow in this elusive chase they will find what they're looking for. But Lord, we know that apart from you, it will always elude them. It will only take them deeper into the darkness of despair and discontentment and disillusionment. And so, Father, again, we pray for mercy. We pray, Lord, that even as those around us who are going deeper into the darkness, we pray, Lord, that somewhere would be a wake-up call. Somewhere there would be a moment of recognizing, what am I doing here? I know there is a God, and I know that he loves me. And so we pray, Lord, that those in our lives, those that we know, those that we love, and even more, Lord, those that we don't know in our culture around us, that somehow we could be used to bring them back to you in your way to find true happiness and rest for their souls, for it can only be found in you. Lord, we pray that you would give us discernment in these difficult times we're living. There's so much deceit around us, even within the church. And so we pray, Lord, give us discernment to recognize the errors of Satan's lies and help us to hold firm to the truth. And we pray that you would work 
through each one of us to your glory. For it's all about your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.